The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. So if you'll turn in your scriptures, please, to Exodus chapter 12. This week we're going to complete this chapter. We spent the last two Sundays looking at it as an overview, then looking particularly at the Passover and because we looked at the Passover last week with Pastor Rockin, uh, I'm going to leave that section of the text out. So if you look at chapter 12, you can see that the first 13 verses deal with the instructions concerning the Passover, and the last verses 43 to 51, the institution of the Passover. Keep that in mind, it's going to be very important come the sermon. We're not reading it tonight, but Passover starts the passage Passover finishes the passage. This evening we're going to pick up in verse 14, and uh, verses 14 uh, to 28 and 33 to 42 are going to be the real focus of our text tonight with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Exodus. So let's begin reading chapter 12, reading from verse 14 through to verse 42. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. 
Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and herds as you have said, and be gone. Bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt, and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's ask his blessing upon this word. Lord, as you have declared your mighty acts in our midst this night, reveal them further now through the preaching of your word. Lord, grant us ears to hear each one of us. Grant me words to speak which are faithful and true and right And Lord, bless us with a new appreciation for your work, your salvation, your redemption in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Structures. Structures are very important uh, in many aspects of life. A structure does not exist for its own benefit, but a structure exists to serve a purpose. Children, look up. Do you see the crossbeams of this building? They're rather beautiful as they are made of wood, put together, seven of them. And yet the crossbeams serve a purpose. Without those, the roof would collapse, at least I assume it would. The crossbeams are there, the structure is there to support the roof. You see, the structure does not exist for its own purpose. It exists for another purpose. So it is with the text of Exodus chapter 12. It has its own peculiar structure, beautiful as it is, 
Its design is to teach us something remarkable about redemption. What is that structure? Well, I've already given you a clue to it. It's a structure we've seen many, many times in Scripture before. It's that structure we know as a chiasm. It's a fancy word. Just remember, it's a series of repeated themes throughout the text. So I've already said the beginning of our text is the instructions about the Passover. The end of our text is the institution of the Passover. So we have Passover at the beginning, Passover at the end. The next theme in our text, verse 14, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The removal, the separation, the setting apart of the people of Israel from all leaven in their home. The parallel to that is there in verse 33, the actual exodus itself. The setting apart of the people of Israel from Egypt, from the Egyptians, and from all its corrupting influences. The middle two themes are about judgment and redemption. Judgment, really. Israel, in verse 21 to 28, is redeemed from judgment by means of the Passover. But the Egyptians, verse 29 to 32, fall under judgment because they have no redemption. What do we have? We have Passover, separation or holiness, and judgment and redemption. I'm going to argue tonight that Passover is a reflection of the truths of justification, justification by faith alone, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Exodus speak to us of holiness, all to the end of salvation and redemption. That's what we're going to see tonight. That's what the structure of the text points us to, that in order to escape the judgment of God, the Christian requires righteousness, justification, and holiness, sanctification. And ultimately, we're going to witness these themes, of course, provided to us individually, not through Passover or through a feast, even the feast we celebrate tonight, but rather we'll see them in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we'll see is justification in the Passover. Justification in the Passover. Then we'll see holiness in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in Exodus. And then we'll see justification and sanctification, holiness, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification, sanctification, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Given that we've spent two weeks already on the Passover, I want to be really brief and quick about the nature of justification in the Passover. If we can think in theological categories for, for a moment about Passover, we're surely thinking in the category of justification by faith alone. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. You've already confessed it once tonight already, and I'm about to explain. We've seen in the last two weeks that Passover was the means by which Israel was redeemed from judgment. The means by which they were redeemed from judgment. 
Israel, as much as the Egyptians, would fall under the curse of the death of the firstborn if they did not enact and observe the Passover and paint the blood on their doorposts. We read that in verse 24 following. So we see that the Passover is given to them by God as the means for their escape. In other words, it's an act of God's grace. God gave it to them. They didn't earn it in any way. It was provided for them by Almighty God. Secondly, we notice that Passover is accomplished through sacrifice. We've seen that a lot in the past two weeks. Probably it's closely aligned to the peace offering. That's where sins are dealt with and fellowship and status restored. Thirdly, we've noted in Passover that not only are sins removed, but fellowship and standing with God are granted. To have fellowship with God is to be righteous in his sight. You simply cannot have fellowship with God without that righteousness. So what have we said about Passover in the last few weeks? First of all, it's an aspect of the grace of God. Secondly, it deals with the removal of sins. And thirdly, it reestablishes a relationship, grants a status to those who enact the Passover. Grace, removal of sin, and righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification. You confessed it tonight. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight. The three principal elements of the doctrine of justification found, yes, in the Passover. Now, we need to be clear, I'm not saying that everyone who celebrated the Passover that night was individually justified, though many were. Clearly, some fell in the wilderness who left Egypt in unbelief. Uh, This is a corporate act and an individual act for many of those who celebrate the Passover by faith. Grace, forgiveness, and the standing of righteousness. The psalmist, David, speaks of the grace of justification in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Paul tells us in Romans that's about the doctrine of being justified. Sins forgiven, the granting of righteousness according to the grace of God and received only by faith. That's clearly what's going on here in Passover. Righteousness, forgiveness, a standing and a fellowship with God. And friends, I think as we consider this reality of Passover being linked to the doctrine of justification, we're beginning to get a glimpse in this narrative of what it takes to escape the wrath of God against our sins. What it takes to escape the wrath of God for our sins. It takes, first of all, the death of an animal, the death of a substitute in place of the death of the firstborn. Notice that. 
The death of the substitute is in place of the death of the firstborn. In other words, God accepted a substitute. And in that substitute, the death of that substitute, the lamb, sins were removed. Righteous fellowship restored and set in place. Michael Morales, in his very good work on Exodus, makes this point. He says, Israel also needed to be redeemed. Israel also needed to be redeemed because he says the threat of death lay both upon the Egyptian firstborn and the Israelite firstborn. And Israel escaped that threat of death not by exemption from the plague as they had previously with the plagues. They escaped not by exemption but by redemption, by death by the dealing with the actual problem that lay between them and God, the death of a sacrifice, the death of a lamb, the death of a substitute. Friends, death is required in justifying grace. We're getting a glimpse, a glimpse of the high cost that must be paid for someone to be righteous in the sight of God and to have their sins forgiven. Egypt paid with their firstborn. Israel paid with the substitute of a lamb. And God would pay for that that sin ultimately in his great substitute, the death of his son, Christ the righteous. Friends, when we fast forward to Christ in justifying graces, we need to understand what that means for us. I'm, I'm jumping ahead, I know, but it's, it's important we understand this now. Salvation in Jesus Christ means this. The debt of your sin is fully paid. The debt that you and I cannot pay, it's fully paid. As it were, God stamps upon the bill, paid in full. That's what Jesus Christ has done in his life and his death. His death has fully paid for all my sins, all your sins, dear Christian. Moreover, in his righteous life and his righteous death, his righteousness is then imputed to you by God. A perfect righteousness, a righteousness without spot or blemish. Imagine that. We who are native sinners, even as Christians, we pursue sin in a remarkable fashion. We are thus described as righteous in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Full and free salvation for Israel and for the Christian here today. And all you have to do, listen to this, we say it so often, may it never become trite to us, all you have to do to receive this full and free salvation is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for full and free justifying grace passover speaks to us of justifying grace and leads us to our lord jesus christ but that's not all that god gives us or israel in this exodus episode 
he also provides them with holiness. This is the main area we want to look at tonight. Holiness in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and its counterpart, the Exodus. Remember, we've got the Passover at the outer parts. We've got the concept of holiness next in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Exodus. Then we've got redemption from judgment or the exercise of judgment in the middle. What we have here is the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 14 to 20, paralleled thematically with the actual Exodus record there in verse 33 to 42. Remember how Pastor Ocken spoke last week. In Exodus, God is sanctifying himself a people unto the Lord. In Exodus, God is constituting a new people. They've been stateless. They've been leaderless. They've been in, in bondage to sin. And in taking them out of Egypt, God is going to set them up in their own land. God is going to be their king. He's going to put them in the promised land and create them as a nation. But what kind of nation? Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6 tell us. Now therefore God says to Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Exodus, God is sanctifying unto himself a people who might dwell with him in covenant life. Thus, what we can say this, what's happening in Passover and what's happening in the Feast of Unleavened Bread are happening to the great end that Israel will be God's treasured possession. They will be a holy nation. Holiness. Think through the calendar of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes it's awkward to think these things through. Passover starts on the 10th day of the first month. As Pastor Rockin said, they take the lamb, they bring it into their home. The lamb lives with them for four days. On the evening of the 14th day, they kill the lamb, have the Passover. That very evening, and for seven days hence, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happens. That's to say, the Feast of Unleavened Bread butts right up against the act of Passover. Seven days they are to enact this Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 12 tells us that. Seven is the number of perfection, completion. The first day is to be a holy gathering of God's people. They're to go to church in our language. The seventh day is also to be a holy gathering. They're not to do any work in it. And for that period of seven days, they are to sanctify themselves from leaven, from yeast. They are to remove it utterly from their homes They're not to eat of it, lest, as we read in verse 15, they should be cut off from Israel. You might think that's a bit harsh. They take a bit of leaven in those seven days, and they're they're excommunicated. But that's because removing themselves from leaven and leaven from themselves is a symbol of something much greater than the removal of leaven from a home. They were to be cut off excommunicated from the covenant people if they disobeyed the commands of this feast. 
And we're told in verse 17 why they were to observe it. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. That's the point. That's the connector between the feast of unleavened bread, the removal of leaven from their lives, and the act of exodus. The feast of unleavened bread was, as it were, a prelude to the very act of exodus so why leaven what's it all about isn't this a rather curious thing to our minds that they are to remove and separate sanctify themselves from the presence and influence of leaven well leaven is yeast children perhaps some of you have seen uh, your, your your mother or someone else making bread and what they'll do is they have a big bowl of dough and a tiny packet of yeast. And they'll sprinkle the yeast into the bread. And the yeast, its effects will go throughout the entire lump of dough. A tiny amount of yeast will, as it were, infect the whole amount of dough and cause the dough to rise. That's practically speaking what leaven does. But scripture draws on the imagery of leaven in quite a different way. The removal of leaven from our lives is a picture of the realities and the struggles of holiness in the Christian life. Our Lord says in Luke's gospel, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's saying to them, Beware! The danger of of this leaven in the Pharisee's life has a propensity to spread throughout all the people. Beware of it. Have nothing to do with it. Paul builds on this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's used the picture of pursuing holiness, putting sin, leaven, behind us, cleansing it out so that we might be a new lump. We might walk in holy ways. It's about holiness. Now, what is holiness? Holiness is very hard to define. Very hard to define. You might think, well, no, it's not. It means sinless. Actually, that's not its first meaning. You might think, oh, that's easy. It means to be set apart from common use. That's true also, but it's not its fundamental meaning. Holiness, you see, is an attribute of God. And God is holy in and of himself. Quite before he had created anything or anyone... He was holy. That is to say, he had the attribute of holiness not in reference to his creation, simply with respect to who he was. That's why we can't say that holiness at the heart of it is being set apart. Was Well, God's not set apart from himself, is he? Sinclair Ferguson, I think rightly and helpfully, talks of holiness uh, in God, in himself, as having the idea of devotion, complete and utter devotion unto himself. And holiness in us takes on that character. It takes on the character of being set apart 
and it takes on the character of being sinless. That is to say, we are set apart in holiness to be sinless, to be wholly devoted unto the Lord. What's going on here in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the parallel passage, the, the Exodus itself, is an act of holiness. In the process of redemption, remember they're not exempt, but they're redeemed. In the process of Exodus, they are redeemed, and they're redeemed unto holiness. Redeemed unto devotion to the Lord. They are set apart to be wholly devoted unto the Lord. Another way of putting it is like this. Having been justified in the Passover, they are sanctified in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in Exodus. And they're sanctified by God, God's actions, so that they might be free from all the corrupting influences of their previous life in Egypt. God takes them out of Egypt. In their existence, And in our salvation, friends, there ought to be a radical discontinuity, no similarity. Redeemed Israel between redeemed Israel and the judged Egyptians. There ought to be no similarity between the two. A radical distinction between them. And that's what the Exodus is about. At least part of it. The Exodus is an act of redemption. How? Through righteousness and holiness. Israel was sanctified, set apart from judgment. And we see that setting apart brings out a reaction in the Egyptians. Verse 33 following. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. The effects of holiness on the people of God were seen clearly in the reaction of the Egyptians. Isn't it interesting? In this narrative, when the wicked see judgment falling upon themselves and the favor of God profoundly on another group, the Israelites, it creates a natural effect And the natural effect is not the Egyptians saying, well, how can we be saved as well like you? No. What do they say? Away with you. We want nothing to do with you. Get out. And to help you on your way, verse 36, what do they do? They give them gold and jewelry. They take their herds. They send them out with profound wealth. They just want to see the back of them. That's the darkness of the human heart, friends. Then when it sees salvation being wrought in a people, turns its back and says, get away from us. Staggering, isn't it? But Israel leaves Egypt with the wealth of Egypt. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Gold, jewelry, livestock, flocks, and... Herds. You might think, well, that's not separation. I mean, Israel comes out of Egypt but takes Egypt's things. No, they're the Lord's things. 
They're the Lord's wealth, the gold and the jewellery. The cattle upon a thousand hills belongs unto him, and he takes it from his enemies and graciously gives it to his people. He sends them out a mighty nation. We read there in verse 37, 600,000 men. In addition, women and children, what are we talking? Two million people? Three million people? Maybe? Streaming out of Egypt. Laden, burdened down with gold and with wealth. That the Lord God is giving them in his grace. Sanctifying all that wealth. Sanctifying all those animals but there's a note in the middle of this last section isn't there a note which worries us a little bit if we've got eyes to see verse 38 a mixed multitude also went up with them fast forward into numbers and you'll see that there was a rabble a rabble most commentators link that rabble who incited israel to complain and dissatisfaction they bring it right back to this verse here could it be and i ask the question rather than make the statement that israel was not as wholly sanctified as it should have been when it left egypt could that be the case we're told verse 40 that The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And they left Egypt that very night. And look how the text describes their departure at this point. I mean, chapter 13 is is going to describe it in even more detail in 14. But here it says this, verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord. A night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. As these two, three million people with all their property in their herds left Egypt. With the Egyptians angry and hateful behind them. It says this, it was a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord watched over his people unto salvation unto exodus friends this is wonderful news for us the god who neither slumbers nor sleeps nor goes on a journey nor turns a deaf ear kept watch over his people that night and he does the same for us today the same for you dear christian now yesterday last week last month 10 years ago 10 years from now 30 years from now not just a night of watching not a month of watching or a year for the christian friends it's a whole lifetime of god watching over us It's just a perfect picture of God's care for his children, isn't it? The justified, the sanctified, the watched over by the Lord. Friends, think on this, whether it's day or night, whether you're in riches or poverty, sickness or in health, in plenty or in want, the Lord watches over 
his own. And there's never a time where his watching ends. Even in days of darkness, friends, the Lord is watching. Never doubt in the darkness what you once believed in the light. Because the Lord continues to watch over his people. And that really takes us to our concluding point tonight. Justification and holiness found not for us in Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but in Jesus Christ and in him alone. You see, what happens to us in salvation is really the foundation of what we are to do as Christians. Notice back in verse 27 and verse 28, as a result of God's redeeming graces upon the Israelites, we read this, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Friends, if you make nothing else of yourself in life, make yourself a worshipper. Make your family a worshipping family. Obey the Lord. What do we read in verse 28? Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They didn't have to do, listen carefully, they didn't have to do in order to get into the Passover. They didn't have to do in order to be justified. They didn't have to do in order to be sanctified. Their doing, their obedience, their service came after those graces in their lives. That's the natural, the biblical, the right order of the relationship between our good works and salvation. If you get it the wrong way round, you're a legalist and you don't have salvation. But the gospel of free grace runs its course in our lives and produces in us what? People who worship and people who obey. That's the point. Salvation as a Christian comes to us from God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why we've just confessed in our confession the graces of justification, of adoption, and sanctification are God's grace. Justification is an act of God's free grace, we said. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Notice that act. Sanctification is the work of of God's free grace. I'm not worried about the difference between act and work, though there is a difference. There are all the result of God's grace. Why is that important? Because Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread speak of what God did for his people back in the Old Testament. But they point us to what God has done for his people today in Jesus Christ. They are pictures for us that lead us straight to the doorstep of our Savior, straight to the cross of Christ, straight to his life of perfect obedience. Think on this. Think on this. One of the most complete statements of who Jesus Christ is for the Christian found anywhere in Scripture. There's plenty of them, but this is a good one. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. He's saying to the Corinthians, God has put you in his son, union with Christ. But listen, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's the Exodus. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's an Exodus paradigm. We've seen there was righteousness in the Passover. Holiness in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Redemption in the Exodus. Friends, if you're here tonight in Christ Jesus, Christ is your Passover lamb and has removed your sin and granted you righteousness. If you're here in Christ Jesus tonight, not the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but Christ is your holiness. It's not the exodus that you went through, but an exodus from sin in Christ Jesus and his own personal exodus. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. This is what he is for us. Paul presents it here in 1 Corinthians 1 as an objective fact and objective work. Friends, if you doubt your salvation, I want you to hear this. If you have faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30 is true of you in a non-negotiable sense. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's an objective fact. It matters not whether you wake up tomorrow morning feeling good or bad about life. This is the truth. This is the fact of who you are in Christ Jesus and who Christ is for you. And dear friend, God would not have you doubt this for one moment. He would not have you doubt Christ's work on your behalf. Consider, Israel did not deliver itself from the destroyer, did it? No, God did. God provided the means for atonement. God provided the righteous standing. God provided the holiness. That's what God has done for you, dear Christian. For people who deserve nothing but destruction, God has provided those realities. And just as he made Israel his son, his treasured possession, so as he too made the Christian his son or daughter. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That's what God has done in your life. Never forget it. He's bestowed on you a status and a state that he will never repeal, nor will he withdraw it. God's favor is upon you forever, if you have received him by faith. And friend, if you've not received Jesus Christ by faith, you, we need to be very clear. Christ is not these things to you, he's your judge. And, and you stand on the side with the Egyptians 
waiting to face the wrath of God far more intense, far more permanent, indeed it's eternal, than the death of the firstborn. We would urge you, dear friends, turn from your sin and receive the Christ. And if, dear Christian, you have received the Christ, which many of us indeed have, how then should we live? We've seen the Israelites worshipped and they obeyed. Paul says this back in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He says, you've been made holy. The power of sin has been broken in you. You're in Christ. You're not unholy. Therefore, live as who you are. Live in accordance with what has been done for you. Because a little sin leavens the whole of your life. It pollutes the whole life. Friend, are you here tonight playing with sin? Playing with sin by what you look at, by what you listen to, by what you say, by the company you keep. A little leaven will produce a harvest of sin in your life. Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century theologian, said this about sin. At first, sin is only a possibility. Then, more probable, but still a heavy task. Next, it is easy, and then light, and at last, necessary. That's the course of sin in our lives. Starts off as a possibility, then becomes a probability, then it becomes easy, then it becomes light, or then it becomes necessary. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. On what basis are you to do that? Paul carries on in the very next, word, in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Cleanse out the leaven of the old lump. Remove unholiness from your life. Pursue holiness. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, you've had your sins removed in Passover Christ. You've been reckoned righteous in and through the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He is also your holiness. Now pursue that holiness. Walk in newness of life, to use Pauline language. What God has done in us, in salvation, should produce in us holy living. And friend, your greatest efforts at holiness will be produced when you realize the staggering extent of your privilege in Christ. Your greatest results in the pursuit of holiness will be realized when you get to grips more and more and more each day with the staggering extent of our privilege in Christ. The I must not do version of holiness is not a great motivation. But what God has done for me and in me and who I am and all my privilege 
is a great motivator to holiness. Paul says it here. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You've been made holy. Be who you are. I know it's a struggle. We all struggle with it. But God says to you tonight, be who you are. You've been unleavened from the effects and power of sin. Walk in that way. Don't try and make yourself a child of God by doing. If you are a child of God, then go and do accordingly. Walk in newness of life. Friends, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread though we rightly do not practice them today, tell us of a saviour powerful to save, powerful to forgive, powerful to justify, powerful to sanctify, powerful to adopt you as his own. And then he says, now go and live in that way. To have Christ as your Passover lamb is to be a justified, a holy an adopted person, it is to be treasured by God eternally. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.